to foster the appropriate excitement, reverence, and joy in our hearts in line with the important truths that we need to fix our minds on. Today, we are going to be in Psalm chapter 2. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to, to turn with me as we're going to read it shortly. Psalm 2 is a very well-known passage to most. It is a royal psalm used by the Davidic kings as a celebration at coronations in spite of the opposition of rebellious people in surrounding regions. For hundreds of years, about a thousand, before the arrival of Christ, this passage was used as an exhortation. Stop rebelling against the Lord and His people and submit to the authority of the Son whom God ordained to rule the nations. Now let's look together with anticipation as this psalm prophetically speaks of the coming King. As we anticipate this Advent season and celebration of the coming of the Messiah. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for Me, I have set My King on Zion, My holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to Me, You are My Son. Today I have begotten You. Ask of Me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. May the Lord add His blessings to the reading of His Word. Let's pray together. Father God, we come to you with joyful anticipation, knowing your, your kingship, your authority, your reign, your truth, your goodness, your joy. We come to you with this expectation of receiving the joy from you that you say you give abundantly. Lord, you are holy. 
And you have redeemed us for yourselves. I pray, Lord, that we hear with ears that you give as your word is read, as your truth is declared. And may the Holy Spirit bring knowledge to our minds as we hear the truth of the living God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why do the nations rage? Why do the nations rage? We're going to be working through this passage as we do typically, which is verse by verse. So if you're following along, keep in line as we work through, starting with verses 1 through 3. The, the first three verses here are an expression of great bewilderment by the psalmist of the nations that, that would overthrow God's anointed. Verse 1 here, the word rage can similarly be translated rebel, be in an uproar, or, or to conspire. It is to behave violently in a state of great anger. This opening question is rhetorical. It's like asking, if you cut me, would I not bleed? The answer is so obvious it doesn't need to be said. Verse 2, that the kings and rulers are likewise obviously lumped into one group of people here. It is a reference to all in position of authority. And, and the, the thing they are opposing or in violent rebellion against is the Lord's anointed and, and that word there, as obvious as it seems today, as we reference to the one true king, it is translated Messiah. Upwards of a thousand years before Jesus arrived. A king appointed here by God was a type of Christ as King David was. And that's why we, we kind of poke fun at the idea of, of, of putting ourselves too often in, into the stories of Israel's kings. When we're reading the Bible, we, we put ourselves as, as the anointed one rather than Christ. The, the anointed is a foreshadow of Jesus. So, so when we have stories like David slaying the giant being used in application as us slaying our giants of, of addiction or weight loss or being the victors of, of other battles in our personal lives. It's, it's a gross mishandling and misuse of this text. Nonetheless, nonetheless, these fallen, sinful men, appointed and anointed by the Lord, they always fell short. They always fell short of what a perfect king and ruler would be. And that was promised 
in Jesus. An important lesson we can learn, as David also proclaimed in that specific story, is the battle belongs to the Lord, not to me. The battle belongs to the Lord. The story of David and Goliath displays Christ and his great victory over sin and how God's people, including us, receive the benefits of Christ's triumph. The story teaches us God is for his people and fights on behalf of his people and to trust in his sovereign purpose and election. And the story is very fitting as an example and comparison here in our text today because this, motiva- this is the motivation young David had in this battle between the Philistines and the Israelites. In, in 1 Samuel 17.26, he asks, listen to this, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. That is the heart of this psalm that we're reading and learning from today. Verse 3, let us tear off their chains and free ourselves from their restraints. In a persistent and perpetual state of rebellion, the rulers of the nations of the world felt restrained in bondage as if tied down to the rule of the Lord and His anointed. They hated it. And they hated Him. And this foolish mindset, the the idea of kings and rulers just casting off the reign and authority of God, it is so stupid that it needs no answer. Why? Why do the nations rage? Now, look at the Lord's concern in verse 4. Look at him trembling now over these mighty men and armies who are banding together to war against him. The world, powerful men, armies. What does he do? What does he do? He laughs. He laughs. Now, as satisfying as it is to imagine the Lord looking down while sitting on a cloud, laughing at the collective rulers of the earth rebelling against Him, this here is what's called an anthropomorphism, which is simply the attribution of human characteristics or behaviors to God. So the imagery is great and all-powerful king sitting on his throne with great armies warring against him. And he sits on his throne and laughs because of the futility 
of anyone ever being victorious against him. Anthropomorphisms are important because you can't smile if your spirit, which God is, right? So to help us understand God's expression, we have bodily human characteristics to compare Him to. We are made in His image. Our characteristics reflect His nature, but are unique in our physical forms as creatures. We are creatures. He is the Creator. Verses 5 and 6, he, he, he doesn't ignore the rebellion. And, and I want you guys to grab hold of this too because we often, in, in times of pain and suffering and agony or injustice in the world, we look, we look off and we say, God, where are you? You're just going to let that happen? God does not ignore the evil that's being done by the rulers of this world. He doesn't ignore evil. In His wrath, read with me, in His wrath, He declares, I have installed my King. Here, in a very real and very impactful sense, the Lord has set the King of Jerusalem, and this set king will be the end of their rebellion. Zion is referred to 40 times in the Psalms. It was originally a Canaanite city conquered by David. It is later referred to the temple area. And then to the entire city of Jerusalem. You see, this very sharp response to the rebellion of the Lord's king and rule very plainly strikes a nerve with the people who would hear this and remember this former enemy territory of Israel's that is now under the reign and rule of God and His people. God establishes His King and subjugates those who would oppose Him. And as you are undoubtedly making connections here to the earthly types of Christ and the foreshadowing of the coming King who will, as the prophet Isaiah said, of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's the prophet Isaiah. Be excited. Be excited. See 
the correlations. But also stay with me here as we work through the rest of the chapter because the prophetic purpose and implications of this text keeps getting stronger. Verse 7, the psalmist now speaks of the right of the Lord's King to rule. This is the Davidic covenant that declares the Lord's King would be as a son to the Father. This is important to ratify in our minds because it impacts a large part of our understanding of God and our theology of what He's doing in this world in this time. This declaration and sonship is a right to rule as God's anointed. And yes, it was the anointed, physical reigning, called kings. Being begotten. It's the Lord becoming as a father to a son. It's not just an expression, it's not an expression of birth. It's, it's a metaphor of becoming God's son. Which, as we just mentioned, has important implications of inheritance. Which is the point being conveyed. Verse 8, sons inherit from their fathers as kings inherit kingdoms from their fathers. Read verse 8. That the, the father says to the son, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. Under the authoritative declaration of the living God, the historic rule and reign of his earthly anointed kings were given inheritance of nations as they conquered those opposed to God. The rebellious nations, he promises, will be subjugated by the Lord's anointed. They will be given to the king as a possession. There is no other outcome proposed here. Verse 9, and given more imagery here, this subjugation is taking a metal bat to a clay jar. Think for a moment of those rec rooms that we have today where you go in and pay to smash things to bits. The reign of this anointed king takes possession of the nations to the ends of the earth based off the authority and adoption of God the Father of the Son. And the Father promises that all nations will be given him as his inheritance. 
This is so important for us to apprehend. Again, be careful not to put ourselves in this picture or this analogy. You're not going into the wrecking room and smashing things to pieces. It's the king, the son, the Messiah. And the wreck room is the nations. And where this analogy falls a little short in our understanding is that it's the rebellion that he's dashing to pieces. The end result is not going to be a mess. But an orderly and peaceful territory once ruled by an enemy. Based on this plan and purpose of God, as revealed here in this passage, a command and warning is now issued. In verse 10 and 11, he exhorts the kings and rulers of the earth to be wise, to show discernment. Discern what? Discern what? The recognition that the Lord God has anointed His King as the ruler and heir of the nations. Wisdom and discernment of kings and rulers for all the world, for all time, requires they recognize and submit to God's anointed King as their authority. This wisdom comes with an affirmative command to worship and serve the king with joy. Live a life of submission, not rebellion. Love and peace, not anger. Fullness of joy rather than despair and destruction. Recognize the beauty and majesty of the God of all creation. This passage ends with a warning and affirmation. This is the living and active Word of God that has purpose as it goes forth. Kiss the Son or He'll be angry. Remember still using imagery here. The Son is the anointed King of the Lord's. As a subject would pay homage to an earthly king by kneeling in reverence and kissing his hand, so the rulers of the earth are commanded to submit to the Lord's anointed by kneeling to him as king. The failure to do this is not a matter of indifference or without consequence. 
failure to do this will result in said nations and rulers perishing. The sense of that word, meaning to cease existing as a sentient entity. When? When would that happen based off of the authority of God's word and declaration? It says at any moment. It's apparent the consequences of rebelling against the king will be based on his patience and his timing. How long will they rebel? Will they continue to? How long will he permit them to oppose him? He's given the order that must be obeyed. The passage here is ended with another affirmation and implication. All, all, all who take refuge in Him are blessed. The king isn't some tyrannical thug that is lording his authority over the world. As we can see in countless earthly rulers throughout history. Submission to the king brings joy and peace. And where there isn't, he conquers opposing parties who would rather take up their authority in their own places and rule over others and likewise brings peace to those places as well. Submit to the Lord's Messiah and be blessed forever. And this, this is where we bring the ultimate fulfillment and implications of this prophetic passage to light as we are just remembering with excitement and looking forward as they did in history as the coming of this Messiah. We look forward with joy and anticipation this Advent season as we get excited. The arrival of the prophesied Davidic king who would rule the nations without end. This then coming Messiah, Jesus, was the final heir of the throne of David. When speaking of the supremacy of Jesus, the author of Hebrews applies this psalm to Jesus. It reads, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son, and today I have begotten you? The psalm we're reading today applied to Jesus. In Acts 13.33, the good news the good news they are bringing the people links Jesus to this psalm. It reads, Acts 13.33, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, 
by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as far as for the, the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. This is one of the reasons it's so important to understand the title Son of God. Not referring to a physical son of a father. If we do that here, it, it makes no sense. Being anointed, anointed as king, by the Father is declaring the Davidic covenant and promise that the heir of the throne is given authority and reign over what belongs to God. The prophet spoke of a promised king who would never die. His rule having no limits and his kingdom lasting forever. And when speaking of this promised king in 2 Samuel 7, verses 16 and 17 reads, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now, to be sure that I'm not misunderstanding the timing and arrival of this king and his kingdom, let's just look to the text even more. In Acts chapter 4, Verses 23 to 27, after Peter and John defiantly rebelled against the government when instructed by them not to speak about this Jesus anymore. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, here it is, here it is. Why did the Gentiles rage? and the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in the city 
there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. This is the early church recognizing this passage that we're studying today, applying to them. The kingdom of God came with the arrival of Jesus. His words, not mine. This Jesus, as Psalm 2 prophetically reveals, would be rebelled against by the Gentiles. Gentiles was the word used in Acts 4 when quoting the Psalms, which was referred to as the nations. Psalm 2 1 to 2 is prophetic of the tribulation which came. Peter, Peter saw this fulfillment of this psalm and the arrival of the Messiah, King Jesus. And the persecuted and rejection of him, Jesus, by the people. And just as they opposed Jesus and he walked the earth who was crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. And today, today sits as king on his throne. So now they continue to oppose him through his body. His body. The church. The church who Jesus commanded, go, get me the nations because they belong to me. Do you remember that incredibly popular and well-known command by our Lord and Savior? That's, that's a declaration and a command. In, in Matthew 28, 18, that the professing church has been completely inconsistent and confused in for several generations. Jesus came to his disciples and declares, I have been given all authority. Do you hear the correlation to Psalm 2 here? 
And Jesus now speaking to His disciples, I have been, have been given all authority. Where? Where did Jesus say that He has been given all authority? In heaven. Quoting Jesus here. In heaven and and on earth. Now based on that authority, my inheritance, Jesus says, based on my inheritance of the nations, my being anointed and king, go and proclaim my reign and teach the nations how to submit to my rule. We already heard the consequence of a rejection of that, didn't we? Based on the sovereign reign and rule of Jesus, the early church expectantly prayed for and received the boldness and power to proclaim King Jesus to the nations of the world. What does he expect to come off the lips of the prophetic work of his church? What should we be uttering as Christ's church? Be wise, Kim Jong-un of North Korea. President Xi Jinping of China. President Joseph Biden of the United States of America. King Gustav of Sweden. There is one sovereign. There is one Lord. One King. One God. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords and rules and reigns today in heaven and on earth. Submit to Him and worship Him as Lord or as He has declared, He has declared, you will perish. Those are the words of the living and reigning God. That is to be the prophetic word of the church today. Speak the true and revealed words of the living God to the nations. And may we live with the knowledge and the conviction and die having never betrayed the everlasting truth to be raised with Jesus as we forever declare no king but Christ.